otherwise on SAFM. Thanks so much, Utsili. Otherwise, it is Talking Women here on SAFM. I'm Nancy Richardson, and the team today is Kim Winter and Luanda Mafiana. And what we have on the show today, well, how hopeful are you about your country's future? It's a big question, but it was one that was uh, posed to many thousand young people at, uh, in six different countries across the country, across the continent, sorry. And uh, it's one that's been tackled by Atambili Masola. She's a blogger, and we're finding uh, out what her response is. After that, the Persona doll training uses lifelike dolls to break down barriers and encourage people dealing with a number of social issues to address them, not least with children. We'll be talking some depth about that in just a minute. And lastly, on the subject of children, autism. Early intervention is what an organisation called CARE offers. We'll find out why and exactly how it works. And it seems with one in 88 children affected in some way across the autism autistic spectrum, it seems that diagnosis is definitely on the rise. So, stay with us for all of that, and if you'd like to join us at any stage, you can. The number is 0892102010, What's news coming to you unashamedly from the Mother City today? Kasatu Provincial Secretary Tony Ehrenreich is blaming Cape Town Mayor Patricia Lill for female firefighters' loss of benefits when they fall pregnant and become non-operational. Male firefighters who also become non-operational still continue to receive their allowances. Well, I have absolutely no inside information on this, and I haven't really read it in detail, but I wonder where maternity benefits uh, fit into all of this. If you've got any thoughts on that, do let us know. I think it's, uh, it's certainly something to unpack, because if they are being unfairly, unfairly discriminated against, we certainly need to, to know. Otherwise, at safm.co.za is the email address to get us on. So in Cape Town, all of us Cape Townians were very shocked to see pictures of uh, Metro City police dragging a blind busker across the street and breaking his guitar, apparently for having continued to play outside his permitted time and refusing to stop. But it seems that such brutal treatment just really does feel a little bit extreme in this case. And also on brutal treatment and also in Cape Town, a female parking marshal goes back to work today having been attacked and slapped by a man outside the Western Cape High Court last week for no clear reason. The incident was captured, though, by a passing motorist. Well, it's worth knowing, and this is according to a report in the Cape Times, that parking marshals are required to reach daily targets of around between five and 600 rand each and every day before they get paid, which means that some take home as little as 20 to 40 rand a day. So before you lose your call with a parking marshal, just bear that in mind. But last bit of news from Mother City, a little bit brighter this time. I popped into the District 6 Homecoming Centre this morning on business and I came across a working group of women there called Hace Combase who were busy making designs from the fragments of China that had found uh, along the streets of District 6. And amongst them was 84-year-old Marian Abrahams who founded the first charm school in the area, looking very stylish indeed she was too. Well, it was really nice to witness all these women not only sort of chattering away as they worked, but actually getting up to practice a few dance moves. And I thought to myself, absolutely nothing wrong with those memories. And just whilst you're there, if you do find yourself in the vicinity, it's in Baconkamp Street, on until July the 13th is an exhibition called An African Tale of the Mother City. So you might like to pop in and have a little look at that. And as well as we're on um, exhibitions, don't forget that right here in Cape Town at the Civic Centre is an exhibition marking the life of President Nelson Mandela. And I think it's only on for a short period of time, so do get yourself there if you can. If you're listening to Otherwise right now, stay with us. Otherwise, on SAFM. Well, 
are you hopeful about your country's future? What a question. What a very big question. But it was one of the questions posed in a questionnaire that went out to 12,000, uh, yeah, 12,000 young people between the ages of 14 and 25 in six different countries across Africa, South Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, Zimbabwe and Nigeria. Um, so what a, what a question to be asking and what a difficult one to answer. Um, we came across it because it was uh, part of it was the, uh, the headline of a blog put together by Atambile Masola, who asked that question. She herself was not prepared to answer it, but we've got her on online to explain. Hi, Atambile. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Excellent. Nice to chat to you again. We, nice. were, we were intrigued by your, the title of your blog, Atambile, <laughs> Are You Hopeful About Your Country's Future? And interesting to know that if you'd been asked that question, you would have said, I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, what do you say? It's such a big question and it's so complex. Yeah, but interesting to ask it to very young people. I mean, 14 mm. to 25, because they might see its complexities. They might have a gut reaction. What What were the? Do you know what the responses were? Well, there were various responses from from different countries, and um, so South Africa was kind of at the top of being happy, but when it came to that question, because of the safety, um, the level of safety and the insecurity that they have in this country, they aren't as hopeful about their country. And if you think of unemployment in this country, it makes it very difficult to be hopeful about your country. But in other countries like Kenya and Tanzania, they weren't so... um, they weren't so pessimistic or um, unsure or unhopeful, so to say, about their country. So it varies across. And, I mean, if you look at those countries, we tend to think that they're far worse off than South Africa when you think of the, the levels of unemployment or the kind of education that they're probably getting or the opportunities they're getting. So I think the group of people that they were asking are well, it's quite varied and different mm-hmm. people will have different answers to it. Yes, absolutely. And you sort of contextualize who and where it's coming from. Mm. Just unpack it a little bit more. Do you know anything more about the survey? No, so I got an email. It came from the organization Everyone Mobile, and they were just telling me about it um, as something to think about for any future blog, and I thought I'd take on that question. So it's an organization that's actually based in Cape Town, and they'd be great. I think this is the first of these surveys that they're doing, um, and... They, because they're, um, they're trying to create mobile communities amongst young people in these countries. So it's, um, it's quite a small um, scale survey, but I think it's, it's very important in terms of giving us scope into, into one of the issues. So that's how I came across it. I just got an email from Iran Mobile. Okay, and you are, I mean, you're quite involved with a lot of young people one way or another through your work. Just explain yeah. how. Well, I'm a teacher, I'm a high school teacher, and um, I've been involved in, in, in various sort of organizations. When I was studying, I used to volunteer um, in literacy programs, um, so that's been my experience of working with young people, um, sort of getting them to think about things differently, and I mean, I'm just, uh, this is my second year of teaching, so I myself am quite young in, in, in the whole profession, um, so I, sometimes I forget that I'm actually a teacher, and I myself in their shoes. Yeah. So that's been most of the work that I've been doing, but mostly through volunteering when I was studying, and that's what led me into teaching. I'm, I must just say that I think they're very lucky, I mean, to have a, a nice, fresh, young teacher who's not only sort of closer to their age, but is, who is also blogging, means that they're <laughs> thinking, do they read your blogs? 
They do. Sometimes they do. I mean, I've actually got a school blog at my um, at my school, so I'm trying to get them into this idea that they can produce material to be on the net and that their ideas are important to be out there for other people to read. Because I think there's a lot of confidence in terms of, well, what's the point of doing language in school? What's the point of doing comprehension mm-hmm. in school if I myself can never be part of this community of writers or community of thinkers? So um, I try and bring that into, into my teaching, and sometimes I'll use some of my articles for comprehensions or for discussions in class. And some of the content that I actually write about comes from conversations with them from class. So it's been very helpful in terms of bouncing off ideas from them and then thinking about them and writing about them or in challenging them to write about them in meaningful ways in other blogs. In your conversations, does the word hope come up? I mean, I'm just, you know, interrogating the question, are you hopeful about your country's future? It's kind of sort of separate, separate from self, isn't it? Because although you are there in the question, it's about your country's future, exclusive of what you feel. Yeah. Have you sort of given that question to any of your pupils, your students, your learners? We do talk about it. and we, I mean, I always get such varied... Um, sort of ideas about what they're saying. Um, and uh, you've, you've got two kinds of students. You've got those who are probably just bored with life and haven't really even thought that far. And that's okay. I think teenagers are like that. But then you've got students on the one hand who are incredibly hopeful, but I think they, they, they recognize that they're in a completely different world from maybe what I've been in or the world that their parents have been in. So they're still trying to make sense of what the world is like and, and trying to understand what the world, I mean, most of what they're trying to understand from the world is in reality TV shows or um, the social networks. So when they look at that, they, 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 they seem to think quite, they, they, they're quite hopeful because they see people like, I don't know, the underdogs becoming quite successful, people without, you know, an education becoming quite successful. So I don't know, sometimes I'm, I'm quite confused at what their idea of hope is for themselves. And then you've got those who come from very, very dire straits, and you, you, they're the ones who, who actually seldom speak about this because they've got a different reality. And when you kind of dig more at them, um, it becomes more complicated. For example, in, in some of their writing, often they write about gangs and their communities. And I'm like, okay, well, what's going to keep you from entering into something like that if it's in your face? And there's one little girl in my grade nine class who I've seen a complete shift. And I wonder how, how hopeful she is because there's clearly a change in her behavior, a change in her ideas, a change in how she approaches her academic work because of the kind of community she's in. And I've spoken to her family. So it's, it's, it's very complicated when we, when we have to think about what are teenagers thinking about and how do they make sense of the world outside of school and, and their communities and how they make sense of what they see as this idea of success because this idea of being hopeful has also a lot to do with well where do I see myself in the bigger scheme of things how am I going to be successful and make a mark and be an example of hope be it from my community or my family and it's, it's very complicated sometimes when um when, you know, when they have to articulate it. And I think it's only when we start asking them these questions, because we often take them for granted, that we actually see how, how are they grappling with them. Yes, and it's further complicated by how indeed you measure success anyway. I mean, material, mm. you mentioned reality TV and all the sort of things that, you know, we see in, in the media is, qu- is quite sort of bling. Um, you know, so there's mm. a sort of sense of, you know, if, if you've got a whole lot of that stuff, does that mean that you're successful? But also what the young people say and what they do, what they do say and what they're not saying, if you know what I mean. So they mm. may be saying one thing or even writing one thing, but they could mm. be internalizing something quite different. Something different, yes. Do you, is that a, is that an issue, or are you able to access these kids and get them to play? Mm. For a few of them, I think we, I can access that, but 
I think, I, I mean, I'm quite new in this, and I, I often think of what I was like as a teenager before I can answer these questions. So when I was 16 years old, what was I thinking of? And sometimes we forget to kind of put ourselves back where we were to think of what were the things that we're thinking of. So it, it is quite difficult to, to access because, for example, one of the smartest girls in my grade 11 class, she's smart, she's book smart, she knows she can get into university. But she's also got this other life where she's a DJ and she just wants to have fun and wants to experience what every other typical teenager is experiencing and doesn't want to answer all those difficult questions. So it's, it's kind of saying, well, there's so many other parts of who teenagers are some of it we, we, you can't make sense. So it's not like this homogenous group of kids who, um, you know, either think about these things or don't think about these things. But there's so many nuances about who they are as teenagers and how they think about this. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's, it's accessible depending on how well I know the kids. But sometimes it's just like, ma'am, I'm just living my life. Please don't ask me difficult questions. <laughs> Yes, and it's certainly plenty of uh, material for your blog, I would imagine, that and Billy. Just yeah. last question. Okay, are you hopeful about your country's future? Yes or no? If you have to say yes, and I'd have to say yes. I Good. definitely have to say yes. I, that was exactly what I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very you much. You got it out of me. <laughs> I do know. Look forward to chatting to you again. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, Nancy. You too. too. Lovely. Atambile Masola, isn't she just terrific? And aren't they lucky girls and guys? I think I'm not sure where she's teaching, but uh, really nice to, to have somebody sort of who's, who's out there and blogging and really thinking. You're listening to Otherwise. Don't forget, if you want to be in touch with us, you are so welcome. It's otherwise at safm.co.za. Or find us on Facebook. It's otherwise on SAFM. Mark Twain once said, Sing like no one's listening. Love like you've never been hurt. Dance like nobody's watching. Mark Lottery once said, Niemann, dance like 49 million people are watching. Because they probably are. Strictly Come Dancing is back and now has a new home on SABC3. Join me and co-host Pavi Malloy on Wednesday, 10th of July from 8 till 10 p.m. to see you tangle their way to victory in Season 6 of Strictly Come Dancing South Africa. Seven of the ten fastest growing economies in the world are in Africa. The continent needs infrastructure to keep pace with this growth. The Infrastructure Africa Conference brings together leading business minds to debate, workshop, and construct Africa's future. Join us at the Sentin Convention Center on 16 and 17 July to see how your business can access new markets in Africa. Register at infrastructure-africa.com or call Jobek 463-9184. SABC is inviting potential service providers for the provision of canteen services and catering facilities at Auckland Park. Tender documents are obtainable from the 5th of July 2013 between 8 and 4 upon receipt of proof of payment of a non-refundable fee of a 1,000 Rand made to SABC Limited at ABSA. Compulsory briefing session on the 15th of July 2013, 10 o'clock at SABC, Ground Floor Auditorium, Auckland Park. Closing date is the 5th of August at midday. For inquiries relating to collection of documents, contact Tender Office on 011-714-4764, SABC Radio Park, Henley Road, Auckland Park, Johannesburg. For more information, go to our SABC website, it's www.sabc.co.za. Otherwise, on SAFM. 
is indeed otherwise where we're talking women, where we've got a couple more women in the studio, and we, they're, they're both sitting here hugging dolls, which makes you think that they must think that we're very fierce here, that they need to bring in their dolls for comfort, but it's very nice that, uh, hi, so hi Carol, and hi Blessing, and hello the dolls, nice to have you hello, and Nancy. Nancy. Carol Smith is the founder and director of Persona Doll Training, and Blessing Tige is uh, Advocacy and Communications, and I'm not sure what the names of the dolls are, if indeed they have names, maybe they don't. Carol, is it okay for dolls to have names? Yes, the whole idea is that the dolls are given a name um, and a, a personality um, that whoever the facilitator is using the doll um, creates a persona for the doll which includes their cultural background, gender, what languages they speak, um, abilities and perhaps disabilities, likes, okay, dislikes. Okay, so the dolls can be anybody. Interesting that the conversation that we were just having with Atambile there about talking to young people, I, I guess this is really where this comes in because... Mm. The com- well, let me not let me not say persona dolls. The idea is to use them to encourage people, young people, children, to, to tell, to reveal their stuff. You're, you're the founder, so give us an idea of where it comes from. Exactly, it's it's a great follow-on from um, from Atambile's uh, issues. We we use the dolls to let the children give the children a voice, and also to make it easier for the teachers or the um, ECD workers, whoever's working with, with the children, to find out what the children are thinking, to, to help the children express themselves and um, share their life experiences, their feelings, um, and to problem solve around some of the, the social issues. Blessing, your advocacy and communications, but I think you're quite involved, certainly the way you're hugging that doll <laughs> makes me feel that you're very involved. <laughs> Have you seen one of the, one of the, the uh, facilitation sessions live or behind, from behind a glass? Have you yes. actually witnessed it? Yes, for me to also, you know, talk about them, mm. I have to, you know, have enough knowledge about them. So um, I started with Persona Dolls last year, and I managed to attend training beginning of the year. And it's amazing the one-day training that you go through, and it's just not about dolls. It's mm. unpacking your own biases. You know, you get into the training, you 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 are not aware of the of the biases and prejudices that you have in, as, an, as an individual. You know, what you think of people who are different from you, what you think of people who don't look like you, who don't think like you. And, you know, they, um, the training unpacks all of that, you know, to put it on the table, make you realize that, you know, we are different in so many ways, but we're also so similar in so many ways. So, so, so tell me a little bit about the training. Um, when you start, you learn a lot about yourself, but you're confronted by this little person, maybe an older person. You don't know them from Adam or Eve. Where do you begin? I think um, the the training starts with... Uh, and where do you begin in the situation? Mm-hmm. If somebody comes in and you're going to work with them, how do you start? Um, with the training for teachers, maybe Carol can help me with that. Okay. How, how does it begin, Carol? Okay. Usually um, a, a group of adults that are working mm-hmm. with children who are open to looking into their own personal journey mm-hmm. um, around inclusion and dealing with, with any prejudices that, that they might have, that we all have, mm-hmm. um, will approach us to, to run a workshop or run training. Um, we also try and visit as many projects as possible. 
Um, and what we do is present a, a, a training p- uh, a day, usually a, a day or, or three days, um, where we go into very specific issues that are raised by the group that we're working with. So um, we, we deal with biases, we deal with uh, cultural similarities and differences, gender, a lot of gender issues. Um, around starting with the individuals, with, with the personal. So, for example, we might say to a group of people, um, try and remember a time when you felt unfairly treated or um, excluded in some way. And then they think about what happened, they think about how they felt, what, what emotions w- would have come up for them and what can they remember. Mm-hmm. And often people remember it might even have happened to them in their school days if, if they're an adult and they, they'll remember those situations and still get that feeling in their stomach that's, you know, from, from that situation. So have I got this right? You work with groups of people who are in turn working with children that's right. to, to help them. Mm. That's, okay. right. that's right. And they would then... Order a persona doll? What we, we like to do is to try and either get funding or they could order dolls and have dolls um, at the training so that they immediately can go back to their work situations, to their classroom or their preschool, their ECD site, and immediately start using um, at least one doll mm. to implement what, what they've learned. Um, because it's really important that people practice and that they get in touch with um, and listen to the issues and the stories that are coming up from the children and in in their communities. And what what happens is an ECD teacher, for example, will develop a story um, of an issue that's relevant that could have happened to children in her class, but it, it would have happened to the doll. So somehow it frees children up to talk about things because they're not under the spotlight. Mm. It's happened to the doll. And you'll get children saying, Oh, just like me. Mm. Because, um, and they, they identify very strongly with the dolls. It becomes, the doll becomes a friend. Does, and it all, then, does it then, sorry. Yes. No, I was just uh, highlighting how our dolls are also culturally relevant. Mm. So if it's in a black community, you know, the doll is made to look like the children. If it's in a museum community, they've got uh, their duke on or they've got glasses and they also sit in wheelchairs, you know, so that all children, you know, they can relate, you know. Okay, well, I'm looking at these dolls and I'm thinking, now what cultural background are they from? Because they kind of, they could be everybody and anybody. Well, we have dolls of all skin oh, okay. in, 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 in colours, <laughs> ranging wow. from dark um, dark brown, medium God, brown, Tutu's rainbow yeah. collection. Exactly, <laughs> and um, Bishop Tutu had a persona doll sitting in his office mm-hmm. as well. Oh, really? Yes, oh, yes. Oh, and they, the teachers can order them specifically according yeah. to, you know, what they feel yeah. is, 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 is relatable with their children. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then they can work with them one-on-one or in groups. Oh, I mean, I see there's a manual here yes. that explains how they can be used in one wonderful picture of a little girl holding a doll very tightly. So one-on-one, is that your intention? Usually um, you work in a a small group, at least uh, about six children up to a full class of 25, 30 or or more children. Um, We've worked with in in classes of of children about 45 even, you know, whatever the, um, the number is. But ideally a small enough group so that it's a group because often the issues are, are very... 
close and serious or, or serious issues will come up and somehow it's easier to talk about if, if, if there's a group. But definitely issues like um, perhaps a, l- a little child has been sexually abused. Um, you wouldn't, because of confidentiality issues, you would want to continue that discussion away from the group on a one-to-one um, I'd, I'd like to just go there a little bit more in just a minute. If you don't mind, Carol Blessing, if we just hold on, we're going to take a, a quick break for the news headlines and come back to that very issue, because there's a, a piece in the paper today which is really very shocking about the evidence of a nine-year-old girl uh, who's allegedly had been raped by her father, and I wonder how this may have made a difference. So stay with us. We're talking to Carol Smith and Blessing Seagate. They're from Persona Doll Training, and uh, we'll be back just now. Stay with us. It's uh, 1.30, news headlines time with Utsile. But right now you're listening to Otherwise here on SAFM. And we're talking about the Persona dolls um, making a difference. These dolls are, well, they're approximately... Uh, 72 centimetres 72 centimetres high and it seems they have plenty of plenty of scope for use in, in all in all sorts of ways but Carol the, the story I was just referencing yes. there it's a terrible story it was uh, the evidence of a nine year old girl who could not remember her age and whose testimony was at sometimes nonsensical was nonetheless enough to have her father locked away for ten years for allegedly raping her well, the story goes on that seven years after his life sentence was handed down, the Pretoria High Court has overturned uh, the father's conviction, and this after finding that his daughter's evidence was unreliable and meaningless. And he was released on bail after his now 18-year-old daughter admitted that her late mother had coached her to make the accusations when she was eight years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not necessarily a story, but this is a sort of... The manipulation that can can happen in a child even as old as eight years old and haven't helped them younger. Um, is, give us an example of how this child might otherwise have been helped to talk. I would hope that that sort of situation you've described would, wouldn't happen if there was a safe place where a, a young child, even younger than nine, could um, feel safe to express feelings and, and what had happened to her. Um, what, what we find is that often children um, are too traumatized um, to actually speak and disclose about what's happened to them. Um, and maybe I can just share an example where we had a, a, a grade one teacher who really uh, felt strongly that a child in her class was being sexually abused, but the child wouldn't talk about it. Um, and the teacher tried many ways to try and get the child to talk. Eventually, she decided to, to use her persona doll, and the doll came with a story of being um, touched where she didn't feel comfortable about being touched and, and having a, an abuse experience. And during that discussion, that, that particular little girl didn't say a word. But later, at the end of the school day, um, she came to the teacher and the whole story came out. Um, so I, I just think it's a, a very powerful story where, where children need to feel safe, they need to be supported to, to be able to ask for, for help. And so that teacher, once it was confirmed, she was then able to get support for herself and, and for the, the child and, and to follow through. Sure. 
Um, it seems, seems almost like every school should have one. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yes, definitely. 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 And the problem is with the, with the children, it's easier to, to normalize things that happen in mm. their lives. They don't know it's wrong because whoever is the perpetrator mm. makes them comfortable. So coming out of that context, their home environment, you know, where you know you are told no, it's wrong, mm. and in a way that makes you you know talk and be comfortable to say no, okay, realize that it's mm. wrong. So I guess it's mm. important mm. for for this kind of approach for ECD learners or mm. uh, teachers or primary school teachers to, mm. yeah, to yeah. have the skill to yeah. use it for children. Well, well, the skill is what it's all about yes. because it's one thing to have the doll which, which mm. is already appealing and it's mm. already a start, but it do, mm. they do come with a manual for teachers and training because I suppose the doll is... Own, oh, and I'm seeing a picture here of, of one of the dolls in a wheelchair mm. that you were talking about. Yes. <laughs> How moving is that? Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, the doll is only as, as good or as useful as the, the as person who is using it. So, so it's quite, the training is quite, I mean, blessing you've been through it. Carol, how long does it take? Well, ideally, when the more time one have, has, the, the more, um, you know, the skills can be developed. But we work, we usually try and aim for a, a three-day tra- training, but we can also break it up into uh, shorter workshops. And, and what we're finding, Nancy, is that the teachers need a lot of support in, in developing those skills to be able to ask the right sort of questions mm-hmm. to get the children to, to speak, those open-ended questions that can um, encourage the expression. Um, because I think often teachers are under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure to get through the curriculum and um, to really... Uh, to, to create a, a safe space where there's a lot of interaction and where the children's, what, whatever they say, is valued. Yeah, just simply asking important. the right questions. And I mean, you know, if you're not used to this sort of thing, you might be sitting there mm. feeling like a sort of ventriloquist with a, mm. a dummy. But just asking simple, how is the doll feeling? You know, mm. why is the doll yeah. feeling like How do you that? think Tabo's yeah. feeling? Yeah. Um, have you yeah. ever felt like, like uh, Tabo's feeling? Mm. And, and what can Tabo do when he, when he goes back or when uh, uh, Tabisa mm. goes back to her uh, um, school? Mm. And that um, bully who, who was uh, making her feel so upset is still there. Mm. What, what can she do? Who can she go to for help? And you're getting the answers and suggestions from the children. It's, yeah. it's not the adult um, speaking all the time. Yeah. It's very interactive. But I see that the dolls don't cry. They can cry. Can they? They have a very neutral expression yeah. on their face so that sometimes they're happy because we don't want to stereotype yeah. the dolls into always being upset or angry yeah. or or sad. Sometimes they're very happy. Yeah. Sometimes they're cross. Yes, they, look, they look benign. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the good thing about them is that they do come with a, an owner's manual, a manual for teachers and training. And as I said, it feels mm. like every school should have one, certainly any group uh, working with children would certainly benefit from. Mm. Let me give out the details. I think they're 380 rand. Um, which is a, a snip for such lovely dolls. And, fully um, clothed with shoes. Fully clothed with <laughs> shoes. And they do come with a manual for teachers and trainers. Carol, thank you very much. Carol thank Smith, you. Thank she's you. the founder and director. And Blessing Sige, thank you very much. And I know you're very attached to your doll. I can see it in your eyes and, and the doll's eyes too. <laughs> and if you'd like to find out more, check the website. It's www.persona-doll-training.org. Persona hyphen doll hyphen training dot org and we will put that up on our Facebook page so you can check it out. If you want to phone 021 762 116 021 762 116. It's otherwise stay tuned. In tune on SAFM. So now the business is up and running. You're making a little bit of money 
What are some of the mistakes that people make once the money starts coming in? Uh, swag. Swag. <laughs> swag. <laughs> we like to flash, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Living beyond your means and just showing off new money shouts, old yes. money whispers. In tune on SAFM, for the youth, by the youth. 12 midday to 1 o'clock every Saturday, only on SAFM. Otherwise, on SAFM. Otherwise, where we're talking to you for and about women, and uh, but we also really enjoy our male listeners, so don't feel excluded in any way. And if you'd like to get in touch, it's otherwise at safm.co.za. And don't forget that the program is podcast, www.safm.co.za. Go to the podcast and scroll down to you get to otherwise. Autism. Well, autism is a big and increasingly uh, being diagnosed amongst children here and across the world, in fact. But it isn't just one thing. There are many, many different levels on what's called the autistic spectrum. And stats suggest that, that as many as one in 88 children could qualify in uh, any somewhere along the line in this spectrum. CARE. CARE stands for the Centre for Autism Research. And we have on the line from uh, the Research Centre, Krishan Samuel, who's the Director of Therapy and Speech Pathology. We've got him on the line. Hi, Krishan. Hi. Thanks very much for joining us. Care, um, autism. It's autism. It seems to be growing. There's a lot more interest, a lot more consciousness, a lot more aware of what it is and what it isn't. But I think that you've got very specific, uh, a very specific take on autism there at Care. Just explain. Absolutely. Um, when we look at autism, we're really looking at a complex, a complex neurobiological disorder, and we're looking at specific features um, that will set autism apart from other types of developmental disability. So we're looking specifically for a language delay or communication disorder. We're also looking at the presence of repetitive or stereotypical behaviors, um, such as hand flapping and so forth. And then we also, and this is probably the main factor, we're looking at a lack of social interaction and the quality of social interaction is decreased. What we also know about many children with autism is that they may have certain sensory difficulties, so difficulties in terms of processing sensory information coming in from the environment. So that's really, those are the main kind of characteristics that we're looking at when we're looking at what does autism mean and how we identify a child with autism. The one that you identify as being a big one is lack of social interaction, which is very difficult to ascertain in a very young child. I mean, at what point could you could you think that this could be a problem? Well, uh, currently we can kind of see that there could potentially be a problem possibly as early as 18 months of age. Um, generally, autism can be diagnosed um, at around 24 months of age. But what we're really looking at is we're looking at some of those markers that possibly are present in a younger child. So we would be looking for the eye contact. We would look, um, for instance, if their parents smiled at them, would they respond to that smile? So we're looking at all of those early social markers in younger children. It's not necessarily social in terms of having friends or making yeah, friends, yeah. but more those early social markers. If you're a first-time parent, however, you wouldn't necessarily know what to be looking for. I mean, I don't want to sort of alarm people who've got uh, children under the age of 24 months, but what could they be looking out for? Absolutely. I think the important thing is always just, if you're a first-time parent, I think it can be quite difficult, but it's always important if you have friends with children of a similar age or if, um, you know, you have family who have kids of a similar age, it's always just important to think, is my child responding and interacting the way I would expect them to interact and respond at this age level? And if you feel that possibly there could potentially be something wrong, then it certainly does need to be followed up. 
From the statistics that we read there, one in 88 children could qualify for, on the autistic spectrum. It seems that diagnosis is increasing. Uh, is it because it's more prevalent or is it just because people are becoming more aware of it? I think it appears to be a combination of both. In reality, we're not 100% sure why the diagnosis of autism is increasing. We do know that professionals in the field and even people who are not necess don't necessarily work with children with autism are getting better at seeing some of the signs or some of the markers of autism and they're getting better at referring a child on if autism is suspected. However, um, there are many theories concerning why they, we're seeing a greater prevalence in terms of the rise of autism, but none of them have managed to really pin it down in mm -hmm. terms of why we're seeing this increase. Uh, equally, there's, uh, there's no sort of one solution to pin it down as to being the way to treat it. But does it help, going back to the very early child or a very young child, does it help to catch it early? Does it make any difference? Is it, is it going to worsen if you don't do anything about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Um, early intervention has proven to be the most beneficial in terms of if um, a child receives intervention early, then we see that there's a chance that, you know, many of the difficulties that they experience can get, they can get the help that they need. So we can get the remediation, we can get the treatment in place for some of those difficulties that they may experience, either in terms of the language and the communication or the social difficulties or even the sensory difficulties. So early intervention is absolutely essential. Like what? Just to describe to us a sort of a, a typical, if you like, program that a child might be put on. So typically what we would expect is we would expect to see differences in terms of the educational program that a child might be exposed to because autistic learners typically will not fit into a mainstream schooling environment. So they would need a specialized individualized education program which will focus specifically on their areas of strength. So for instance, many autistic learners are visual learners. They don't process verbal information as well as they process visual information. So for instance, around our center, we'll have many visual schedules and that's one of the interventions which need to be put in place for learners with autism. In addition to that, they'll also need to receive specialized therapies such as occupational therapy and speech language therapy to assist with their delays in those areas. So essentially the whole approach to autism, um, it hinges on specialized intervention and looking at their areas of core deficit and the intervention that they may require for that. Would imagine, I mean, if they're visual learners, um, you know, one wouldn't want to, I mean, you mentioned, the, you know, the verbal skills, the, the speak, speech pathology, um, one wouldn't want to neglect the, the verbal aspect. Is there any particular way, I mean, if a parent is working with, a, if a parent has a, an autistic child, uh, one can commit them to some sort of treatment in a, in a specialised school, but working at home with them as well, are there, are there ways that you encourage uh, parents to help their autistic child with their speech? Absolutely. Um, you know, for us, when we look at it from, um, we're looking at their strengths in terms of their visual strengths. So it wouldn't be necessarily um, neglecting the verbal strengths, but rather seeing that the visual is a way to accessing the verbal information. Mm -hmm. So even at home, um, the parents could make use of picture communication systems. The parents could, um, you know, put pictures up around the house. For instance, if a parent needs to teach a child how to brush their teeth, they could have photos of each of the different steps involved with brushing their teeth. So it would make it very visually explicit for the child. And we definitely suggest that parents use those strategies at home because it helps them communicate with their children and also helps unlock the child's potential because we know that they access the visuals so much better. Is there a hope for a complete recovery? Um, probably not the right word, but is it ever going to completely change or is it just going to 
make things better? Autism is a lifelong condition, so it will be present for the entire duration of an individual's lifetime. However, with intervention and adaptation, the quality of life of the individual can certainly increase. And also for many learners, if they receive the early intervention, which we were speaking about earlier, then they could potentially access um, other forms of education. They could potentially access a mainstream curriculum. However, what we do know about autism is that in terms of the social interaction and the deficits in those areas, that it is a lifelong condition. So there is no cure. We talk so much about autism in children and very young children and how you cope when they're children, but the the difficulty is that an autistic child is going to become an autistic teenager and then an autistic adult. Do Do you also work with people as they get older? Um, At our centre, we don't. We currently only go from the ages of 18 months up to 12 years of age, but we do get to interact with adults with autism in the community. Um, The autism community is quite a a tight-knit community. Um, We were recently at the World Autism Conference in Dublin, and there were quite a few um, speakers at the conference who were adults living with autism. And what was really clear was that the autism certainly does not go away. It's more about dealing with the autism and developing strategies in terms of managing the autism. We've got Edwin on the line from George, who I think has got a comment. Hi, Edwin. A very good afternoon to you, Nancy. This is something I've studied over some years, since uh, when we were in Tullbach, there were three or four kids there, a tiny little place with autism after having had injections. And respecting the autism saga, there's been a scurrilous attack on Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who, working in the United States, discovered and revealed a strong link between the increase in the incidence of autism and the use of vaccination cocktails, which are actually mandated in parts of the West for use on our children. Although people like President Bush wouldn't use them because he says when asked, oh no, we save them for other people. They they thus become a target for abuse, uh, the unoral pharmaceutical industry. Look, it's not reported in the mainstream media that one of the parties involved in the scam, Dr. Paul Torson, has been indicted and given a jail term for an astonishing 260 years Ed- plus 90 Edwin, for his part Edwin, in the scandal in money laundering, fraud, Edwin, misleading leave- centres of learning. And Dr. Wakefield was put before a London High Court judge, Sir Nigel Davis, and Edwin, denied his Edwin, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you because I'm afraid we have so little time. And I do hear what you're saying. I'm going to um, run that past our guest. Christian, uh, vaccination and vaccination cocktails and autism, what's your take? Um, Unfortunately, the research is inconclusive in terms of, you know, whether there's a direct causal link. There's anecdotal evidence that suggests that children who received the measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccination, that was a potential cause of autism. But that's never really been clarified by the research. And, you know, from our professional viewpoint, we would certainly not suggest to a parent that a child does not get vaccinated because the vaccination causes autism, simply because there isn't enough research to back that up. And we know that the um, disadvantages of not getting the vaccination could be so much worse in the long run. So, unfortunately, you know, just from a purely professional standpoint and in terms of the research, there is not uh, conclusive research to back that up. Yeah, thanks, Edwin, for bringing that up. But I know it's a very big one. Uh, It's a a big issue, perhaps, for a topic for another day. I know that you've got a fundraiser coming up very soon, Christian. In fact, it's happening on Thursday. It is happening on Thursday, yes, on the 11th of July, um, here in Johannesburg at Katie's Palace Barn. Okay, and you're hoping to raise how much for what? Um, we're hoping to, it's, it's actually the beginning of our fundraising drive and essentially we're just looking at 
raising the, the funds to sponsor a disadvantaged learner's tuition so that they can attend our centre. Um, unfortunately, access to services is, is still quite difficult in South Africa, especially access to specialised services for autism. So what that means is that many disadvantaged learners don't get to access those specialised services which they so desperately require. So we are starting our fundraising drive at the moment and we are hoping to raise funds to sponsor the tuition for a child to attend our school. Absolutely, because autism doesn't know any social class or bounds. Not at all. It's right across, and as I say, a huge spectrum. Very best of luck, Christian. I hope you raise lots of money for all those disadvantaged learners because certainly it's, it's a big issue. And I hopefully we'll be able to talk about autism at, at some greater length again another day. Thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Christian Samuel, Director of Therapy and Speech Pathology at Autism at Care. And if you'd like to find out more, it's thecarecentre.co.za. Thecarecentre.co.za. And I hope. Hopefully we will be able to talk about autism again another day here on Otherwise. But right now, it's time for Shop Shop, the children's programme.